Welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We're all in process, becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey of becoming like Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. Again, it's so nice to be with you guys. My name is Weston. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to oversee Hear the Cry and our hospitality team, which has been so much fun. But hey, before we actually dive into the scripture, I want to give you just a quick family update for my wife, Jenny, my kids, and myself. So um, last year, uh, we hit the seven-year mark. Um, in February, it was eight years for us being here at a Jesus Church, and it's been incredible to be a part of this. But one of the really cool things about being um, a pastor here, being on staff here, is after seven years, AJC offers a sabbatical. And so we're, we decided we're gonna be taking that this summer. So in 15 days and four hours... <laughs> we are gonna be taken off um, for about 11, 12 weeks. Um, so we get to go and um, we're going to spend a little bit of time with Jenny's family on the East Coast and stuff like that. So you won't be seeing us here as much this summer, but we are still here. Really excited to be, to go, to feel, to be refreshed emotionally, spiritually, physically, all the things to come back and put in another seven years, however much the Lord allows. So if you would just be please praying for us as we go, we got a whole bunch of excitement and anticipation building up to it, but I also just want it to be a space um, for us just to to be refreshed, to feel the spirit move in a cool way for our family, for our kids. So just be please praying about that. But I just want to let you guys know, if you don't see us, it's not because we left. We're not going anywhere. We're here. We're just not here right now. So all that said, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for what you're up to. We thank you for the way that you're moving and working in our space, in our midst. God, we thank you for what you're doing at a Jesus Church. We thank you for the opportunity to be a part of what you're up to and seeing you answer prayer, seeing you move over and over again, week after week, day after day, moment after moment. God, we're so grateful. So thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you're up to. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Hey, so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. So if you need a Bible, you can put your hand in the air um, and there'll be people that will hand you a Bible. If you don't own one, you can keep this one. We're continuing in our series, Becoming Like Jesus. But before I read the passage, you can be turned into Luke 16. Before I read this passage, um, I just want to give a bit of a preface. So there are some parables or stories that Jesus told that are very easy for us to follow. All right, so think like the Good Samaritan. While it's really fun to nuance it, and you for sure can, the parable itself, the message is pretty straightforward. But then there are parables um, that are actually extremely confusing to understand. And the more even we study it, it actually be, maybe becomes a bit more clear, but there's still just so many question marks. 
It reminds me of years ago, I was with my two boys. They were in car seats, so it was a while ago. They're like four and three years old. I was in my little six-speed Honda Civic that I inherited after I got married from Jenny. And so I'm driving, and the boys are in the back, and their car seats buckled in. And all of a sudden, I heard Lincoln, my, the second born, he started to cry. And he's like, Dad, Chandler bit my ear. And to which Chandler replied, it was an accident to which I spent the rest of the drive contemplating the probability of it being an accident to bite somebody's ear. And then the more I thought about it, but, how, but you're both in car seats. Like how did, so that, the more I studied it, actually the more confusing it became, right? <laughs> Similar to some of these parables, okay? So Luke chapter six actually has two of these such parables, uh, but we're just gonna hit one of them today. Uh, if you're curious about the second one, Richard and the Crew did an incredible podcast. You can um, go to the House of Learning podcast and learn more about that. Also, the Bible Project has some really cool stuff on this chapter. But that said, I would actually go so far as to say that what we're about to read would fit into the category of things you don't expect to hear from the Bible. Um, and so the Gospel of Luke is actually, oddly enough, the only gospel to record this specific parable. And so Jesus, a master teacher and master storyteller, Luke, a master author and writer, created this, this parable that Jesus told. And what we get is this beautiful literary work of art, which is amazing, but also can be confusing. So preface done. Let's stand and let's turn to chapter Luke, uh, Luke, Luke chapter 16. We're gonna start in verse one. We're gonna read through verse nine. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtor. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Well, the master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwelling. Right? <laughs> Go ahead and grab a seat. Okay. So I, there's just so many questions in that. Like, first of all, what is actually the master commending? Like it seems like based on that, that we're actually supposed to use our money to gain friends. Is it? Because that's, so right off the bat, a couple of things. I, th I think we can at least get a, a bitter, bit of a clear picture on this. Right off the bat, a couple of things. First, you have to remember that the scripture was not written to us, but it was written for us. More specifically, parables were not told to us. They were told for us. There's a big difference there. And when we read parables, we have to constantly remind ourselves that the authors of the Bible were not thinking about Tiger in Oregon 2023. 
And the inverse is actually also true. When we read parables, we have to understand that we don't understand their culture either. I mean, we can try. We can learn about some of the tensions. We can learn about some of the ways that they lived. But the reality is that we, we just miss it. Um, we were looking at some old family pictures a while ago at my folks' house, and I came across this picture. I want to see, do you guys have that? Yeah, this picture right here, okay? So the, the little girl in the very front, that's my, my great-grandmother, okay? And based on the writing, I figured this was in 1924. That's just how I, this is how I work, right? So about 100 years ago, and I'm looking at this picture, and all of a sudden I'm like, yo, what's around that girl's neck that she's holding on the far right? And then all of a sudden I'm like, why is she standing in a barrel, like, why is that girl standing in a barrel? I cannot even understand what was going on in this moment. Like, 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 oh, the guy's here to take a picture quick, get the family barrel. I mean, I don't like, what are we doing here? It's like, why are we getting a barrel? I don't know, it'd be funny. I, I, and this was just a hundred years ago. So things that I, I don't even begin to understand and what's up with the haircuts, is that a style or is that just, I don't know, right? So there's just so much about this just a hundred years ago that I'm the, the culture is completely lost. The emotions, the tensions, what was going on is completely lost on me. You add a couple thousand years to this and we actually don't really have any idea some of the culture that we're stepping into as we read. So when we read passages of scripture that don't make sense to us or parables that are like, what is going on here? We have got to understand that step number one, we actually don't understand. And we have to, and that's okay, but it's actually okay to then, well, what is he actually trying to say? What's going on here? And so it's, it's, it's pretty common when you read scripture to actually not understand what you're reading at all or to misunderstand it completely. And misunderstanding of scripture happens, there's actually two ways that it happens. And the first is when we read scripture through the filter of our own culture and our own context. For example, let me give you one of the most misinterpreted scriptures of all times, in my opinion. Don't at me. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. We see this passage all over the place, right? And it goes really well with the message that I and, and most generations under me received growing up is that you can be anything that you want to be. You can do anything that you want to do. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. No, you can't. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like gonna be super blunt. No, no, not everybody um, can be a quarterback in the NFL. It just requires a, a specific skill set, body type, mindset. Not anybody can become a rocket scientist. Um, you know, maybe I should have been told this a bit more growing up. That like, hey, keep it in check. Um, instead, my parents were amazing, sitting around, amazing, loved them to pieces. But y'all, I was a worship leader for a couple of years. I can't sing. <laughs> parents didn't tell me that. Like, you got it. Thanks. Let's go for it. No, I, I, can't, I can't sing. Can't carry a tune in a bucket. You know, um, I actually didn't find that out um, that I couldn't sing very well until I, after I got married. You, I just gave you a timeline. 
you all connected the dots on that one. That was, anyway, um, so after I got married, I found out like, I, yeah, I can't sing very good. Um, but not everybody has the makeup to play in the NFL. Not everybody has the makeup to be a rocket scientist. Not everybody has a skill set to be a worship leader. Now I'm realizing I'm using super strong language here, but the truth is that if you work really hard after something and you believe really deeply about that thing, you still might not get it. But does that mean that this passage is not true? Well, well no, it just means that we've completely ripped it out of context and fit it into our own life situation. The context of what's going on here is actually Paul's writing this while awaiting trial and possible execution. And he's attempting to encourage the church in Philippi to endure their sufferings by recognizing that the God who conquered death himself actually can strengthen you through difficult times. So is there stuff in here for us to get? Yes, is God capable of giving us the strength each day to endure really difficult things? Absolutely. Is this a promise that you'll be able to achieve all your hopes and dreams? Well, no. It's not about being magically blessed with an athletic or professional edge. Yet so often it gets used that way. So we see scripture, we read scripture, and one of the often the ways that we misunderstand and misinterpret it is we rip it out of the context of the original author and insert it into today, into me. Now, the, the trick about this is that there are times when the Holy Spirit can do that. The word of God is alive and active. It's, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And what you're going through, there, you can be reading scripture and it will just jump into your soul deep inside where actually helps you understand and recognize what you're going through today. It's the beauty of scripture. But more times than not, when I read scripture and I'm misunderstanding it, it's because I've ripped it into my own culture and context. That's the first way. The second way, reason oftentimes we misunderstand scripture is when we actually misunderstand why the gospels were written to begin with and specifically parables. The good news of Jesus, or the gospels, is not about how we get to heaven when we die. I'm gonna say that again. The gospels, the good news of Jesus, they're not about how we get to heaven when we die. It's not an escape plan for us. It's about how God is actually bringing his life, his love, his kingdom to us, his kingdom to this world. It's about God coming to us. God first coming to us. Not about me getting to heaven. It's about God coming to us. His kingdom come, your will be done. It's about for God so loved the world that he gave. That's what it's about. That's what the gospels are about. And so when we approach any parable, specifically difficult parables, not through our own culture and context, but from the perspective of for God so loved the world that he gave, we'll actually begin to have this brand new understanding of the Father's heart towards us and an excitement for his coming kingdom. So when we approach scripture that way, it actually begins to open up. So with that in mind, let's look back at this parable. As an insight, this parable is an insight into the Father's heart for us and not a prescription of how we should behave or how this fits into our culture. So what's going on here? So let's just back real quick, back up to Luke 15, if you would. 
Um, this is kind of where the scene begins. Luke, beginning of chapter 15, and Tim taught last week about this. Like, you can go back and listen to it if you missed it. Excellent. But if you look at the beginning of, of Luke 15 in verse 1, this is what it says. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. So the next three parables, the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son, they were, they were told to the Pharisees, okay? All talking about the heart of the father and the father's undivided attention. Now, for sure the disciples were there and, and they heard it, but these parables were directed to the Pharisees. Then the beginning of chapter 16, it says, Jesus told his disciples. So he shifts the focus from the Pharisees to his disciples and he tells them this fourth parable. And it's about an authority figure, the rich man, and the subordinate, the manager. And the rich man is firing the manager for wasting his possessions. It doesn't give us a whole bunch of reasons why. It just cuts to that part. Basically, the rich man is saying, hey, you've been wasting my possessions. You can no longer work here. So really, the rich man isn't necessarily a good guy or a bad guy. He's just a guy doing a very sensible thing. He, he owns a business. He's got an employee, and the employee is wasting his possessions on purpose. So he's saying, hey, we're done here. And, he, and actually, this is the moment that we see a theme in many of Jesus' parables. You have an authority figure that's bringing a moment of reckoning that, voice, that forces a crisis of the decision of the character. So you have an authority figure bringing a reckoning that forces a crisis moment on the character. It's a, it's a common theme in Jesus' parable. And so this manager, essentially his last day on the job, is cutting everyone's debt in, in like way, way down, way down. And what we think reading this is what's coming next is the master is gonna show up and say, you wicked servants. And, and Luke's strong language that he likes to use would be like, what we expect next based on what we've seen in Luke already is it's, it, you know, this time for the execution for you, you know, whatever it is, like a harsh punishment. But this is actually the twist. The twist is that doesn't happen. The narrative says he was a dishonest manager. What he was doing was not honest. That's clearly in the narrative. But instead of getting taken to court or executed, the rich man says, I, I like what you're thinking here. I mean, you're still fired. I mean, that's, let's be clear, you're still fired. But what you're, you're onto something. There's something about what you're doing. And I think what makes this really confusing for us is that because the master commends him for this, we automatically assume that this is character for us to copy. But actually look at what Jesus says next in verse eight. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. It's a very interesting passage. So this man was forced by a moment of reckoning. And what did he do? He valued relationship over money. Now, the dishonest manager secured his future by downgrading money, listen, he secured his future by downgrading money from the most important thing to just an instrument and upgrading the importance of relationship. Now, was it messed up? Yes. Was it dishonest? Yes. Was it like all twisted? Absolutely. But he valued relationship over money. And what's in Jesus' mind here is that the ultimate value is people and relationships and money is an instrument in the service 
of a greater cause. That's what he's going after. And there's something praiseworthy about the manager, but the point is not to go out and cheat people out of money to gain friends. Although that's what it seems like it's saying to us. But again, it's not written to us. So what is he trying to say? The point is, he didn't let money distract him from a greater goal. So after Jesus had addressed the Pharisees with the three parables that display the, the undivided heart of the father with the lost coin and the lost sheep and the prodigal son, he then tells this fourth parable to his disciples. And this fourth parable fits into a much larger kingdom sort of mindset. It's an upside down from the rest of the world mindset which is really what makes this parable so provocative is because Jesus actually uses an incredibly um, like not kingdom analogy. He uses something that somebody who doesn't follow Jesus would do just naturally and easily. Like it makes sense. And so he uses a story like that to compare it and connect it to his disciples. It's very provocative. I mean, Jesus is really telling his disciples that everything that you see around here, he's, again, he's trying to help them like understand that the temple, everything's going on here. Jerusalem, it's, it's not gonna last forever. And he says, be ready. So this interesting passage in verse eight, it's almost as if he's saying, listen, the sons of the world, they know when to downgrade money, when to shift the importance. He's like, do, do the same, do the same. Value relationships more. I mean, look what he says. Notice how he shifts the focus to trust and relationship in the passage. Let's pick up in verse 10. Luke 16, verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little. He goes right into trust, right? Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly riches, who will trust you with true riches? Again, talking to his disciples. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And then in verse 13, Jesus really drops what I think is the main point of this whole thing. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this Remember, from the beginning, from the beginning of chapter 15, all four parables, they heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. How ridiculous that this person would value the relationships over money. The Pharisees who loved money were sneering at Jesus. I mean, I mean they heard the first three, the undivided heart of the Father. And then for Jesus to say you can't serve God and money, don't let money distract you. Downgrade money to just an instrument and upgrade relationships. I think what Jesus is trying to say here and what Luke is pointing at is that becoming like Jesus requires an undivided heart and correct priorities. Because while the religious leaders of Israel might have looked the part, they, according to Luke, loved money and according to Jesus, well, their hearts were not in the correct space. They were trying to serve two masters and no one can. I think one of the things too that's really interesting about this passage is the passage, the line that says you cannot serve both God and money. 
Uh, the English language kind of messes this up. And actually, King James Version keeps the original Greek word in here. It says, you cannot serve both God and mammon, or mammona, which means riches. It does mean money, but it's so much more than that. The root to this word is actually the thing in which you put your trust. That's where this word comes from. And we just translate it to money. It, it's not just isolated to that. The thing in which you put your trust, what you have, your possessions, your skills, your talents, your jobs. In fact, some scholars even cite that the name of the Syrian god of wealth, the name of the Syrian god for wealth and possessions and gaining was mammon. So it gives a little bit more weight to Jesus's words when he says, you cannot serve both Yahweh and mammon. And this is something that is as relevant today as ever. This is the point that Luke is trying to make. And it's actually the point that I'm gonna land on today. You cannot serve both Yahweh and mammon. How do we, how do we know? How do we know where, where our allegiance is? How do we know where our priorities are? When our life becomes a quest to accumulate more, when attempting to gain displaces our obligation to love our neighbor, when we become obsessed with protecting our property or possessions, and when anything becomes a replacement for God. I'm gonna sharpen the pencil just a little bit. When we buy things we don't need just because we want something new. When we can't remember the last time or the last face of the person that we gave to. When fear of loss becomes one of our highest motivations. When an opportunity presents itself and our first thought is about what it will cost instead of your kingdom come your will be done. I mean, just very plainly, it's one of the main reasons we don't list the cost of the Hear the Cry trips on the website. You go to the website and you see all the trips we're doing. I'm not gonna talk about cost yet because I would love for you to know whether or not you feel called to the trip before you can decide whether or not you can afford it. Because then we can talk and there's some really cool things that can happen. Luke 15 starts this beautiful, undivided heart of the Father, and then Luke 16 says, keep your heart from becoming divided. Keep things in the right order. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Becoming like Jesus requires an undivided heart. And listen, parents in the room, I just wonder, as parents and, and just standing shoulder to shoulder with you, what am I teaching my children by what I spend my time and money on? I've heard it said that what you do in moderation, your children will do in excess. That should terrify us. I wonder if, as parents, we're accidentally demonstrating the wrong priorities to our children. Okay, I'm gonna walk a super thin line. If it ruffles feathers, come chat with me. 
I wonder if as parents and a culture, our attempt to help our children succeed, whether in job, education, sports, or really are in fear of letting them down, are we actually demonstrating to them a misaligned value system? Now, does that mean don't care about money or possessions or sports? Well, well no. No, those can be amazing things. And in the hands of the right people, they can, you're blessed to be a blessing, right? It's amazing. I'm a huge fan of sports and the development process for kids. I, I'm really into that. But it does mean, do you have them in the right priorities in your life and in your family's life? Mammon stands in competition to God. And the problem comes when mammon, or another way to say that, when anything displaces God as the number one in our life. I want to tell you a quick story. Um, this just happened just recently. And again, I, I, I recognize I'm walking a thin line here. This might not be for every family, I understand. But this is what we chose to do this time. Um, Chandler, my oldest son, he's a, he's a uh, freshman in, um, in high school at Wilsonville, and he's on the lacrosse team and loving it. He's swinging, so JV and varsity, which means he plays a whole bunch of JV, and he doesn't play at varsity, but we as parents get to watch four and a half hours of varsity on a given, or of lacrosse on a given night, which is fun, but also it's a lot of lacrosse, and I don't understand. Anyway, so we're here watching, right? And Chandler's doing a great job. He's playing really well. And all of a sudden, we realize Friday night, Good Friday, there was a game, a varsity game. And we had to have a chat. Like, we had a Good Friday gathering right here and we have a varsity game going on in Wilsonville. And so we're like, okay, what do, what do we do as a family? I mean, we, Jenny and I, we're just like baby stepping through this. We've never been parents of a freshman before. Like, we're, like how, do we, how do we do this? And so Chandler knew going into practice, like, look, Sundays are, are off limits. We're just not gonna practice or play games on Sundays. We're keeping that to the side. But a game on Friday night, and that's Good Friday, like, is there any gray room in that? And what we, we decided as a family, Jenny and I talked about it, and we realized, no, this is gonna be a moment. And I think sometimes what you say no to is teaches your children more than what you say yes to. And so um, we, we're like, you know what, bud? We're gonna do Good Friday. Good Friday goes from seven to eight o'clock. Your varsity game starts at seven and it's about 72 hours long or however long there are, right? <laughs> so when it's done, then, then we'll go to your game. He was just like, 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 what do you do with this? Like, he's like, how? I mean, I mean, his mind was running 100 miles an hour. Like he like was all the different perspectives, right? He, I mean, he was looking at everything. He's like, like, so he's like, does it say anywhere in the Bible? Like he goes that route, right? Or then he was just like, how about this? How about I'll be on the sidelines and I'll watch last year's Good Friday and I'll just be thinking about it. And I'm like, okay, no, I, I hear that. That's great. I love the problem solving, right? That's huge. But actually, no, we're gonna sit as a family on Friday night and bud, it's okay, you know, varsity, you're, you're not playing a ton anyway, like it's okay, we'll get there as soon as we can, great. Beginning of that week, two of the starting defensive players, and he plays defense, got hurt. So his coach came to him and said, hey, you're starting. Oh, thanks coach. Um, so Chandler's like, I'm, I'm starting. 
I'm like, when? When are you starting? Like Tuesday and Friday. I'm like, oh man. Like it really puts your feet to the fire, right? Like we made this decision like on the week before. So what are we gonna do now? You're starting. We don't wanna let your team down. All those things. And Jenny and I talked about it. We prayed about it and just felt resolved. And I'm just gonna say this time, I mean, maybe it'll happen again next year. But just this time we were like, bud, we're gonna go to Good Friday as a family. <sighs> okay, okay. And, and again, like I'm, I'm just wondering, like am I really, like all the things that you question as a parent, right? So Friday came and he had his lacrosse clothes on over the top of his, uh, his, his church clothes, right? So he had his shorts and his jersey on and he had like a hoodie and sweatpants and he sat right over here and he, he greeted people on Friday and I was just, we were just praying, God, would you just do a work? And his heart shifted completely. It was this beautiful moment where he was welcoming people in. He sat with us worshiping Jesus. It was beautiful. And uh, I, lo- I was so grateful for the way that Molly ended Good Friday because it wasn't a turn and chat and have a good time. It was like, all right, go. And we're like, we're out. And it was great because um, I-, I told Jan, they're like, listen, if it ends it, we're not leaving at eight. We're leaving when it's over. So if it's 8.05, 8.10, that's when we leave. Okay, okay. So we stood up and it was go. He looks at me, I was like, yes, we're going. So we got to the car. We drove the 20 minutes down to Wilsonville. I mean, he had his helmet on and his mouth guard in before we left the parking lot here, right? And so we're cruising down. We get there, door opens. He runs out, we park, we go in. We look at the clock. The game was supposed to start at seven. It was 10 minutes left in the second quarter. Like he barely missed any. He ran right down on the field. And I was just like, okay, coach, what are you gonna do? Like, like I had no idea what the coach was gonna do. And he looked at him and was like, warm up. And the moment he was warm, he sent him in the game. Chandler played the entire second half of the game, had a fantastic game. They won. He loved the way that he played. And he came back just beaming. And it might not always work that full circle, but for us in that moment, it was a moment of God just saying, hey, let me bless you a little bit if you just put me first. It was gorgeous. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's how everybody should do it. But I'm saying for my family, that was a moment. And it was one that my kids won't forget. Maybe you're unsure of where your heart is this morning. Because I know that's for me a question of like, well, no, I, I love Jesus. I want to serve Yahweh. I'm not like blatantly putting him second place or third place. I'm not trying to. But sometimes it's good to ask that question. Yahweh gives himself in love for the world while mammon demands the world for himself. And you become like what you serve. Serving Yahweh will begin to look like serving others. Serving mammon will begin to look like putting your comforts first. You cannot serve two masters. And the great deception of this whole thing is that the deception is that mammon will do for you what only Yahweh can. If you get a little more, if you go to this thing, if you experience this moment, if you travel to this place, if you do all these things, if you gain just a little bit more, then actually that will bring what only Yahweh can. And Yahweh, if you serve Yahweh first, it means you're gonna lose your freedom. That's the deception. It's completely upside down. Mammon cannot and will not ever bring you peace. It cannot and will not ever bring you true joy. It cannot and will not ever be satisfied. But it will bring you anxiety. 
It will bring you fear and it can bring greed. But Yahweh is peace. Yahweh is joy. Yahweh is fulfillment, is hope, is life. Yahweh is love. And we get to choose who we serve. So the way I want to close this morning is just simple. I just want to take a moment and go to the Father. And I, I, would, I would just ask that you do this. Like you truly open your heart and say, God, is there anything in my life that I've put in front of Yahweh? Or to be more pointed, is there anything in my life that has begun to replace him? What is threatening that number one spot? It may not be that he's asking you to get rid of that thing or to stop doing that thing. I mean, maybe he is. But maybe he's just asking you to realign your priorities to Jesus first. So let's stand together to pray. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.